This is a story by David Vexler. <clears throat> he says, I lived with my parents in Ukraine when it was part of the USSR. We were not as poor as most people, but my grandparents remembered the Holdemore, which was a man-made famine where the Soviets confiscated food from people's homes and farms, leaving millions of ethnic Ukrainians to starve. Armed soldiers guarded grain storehouses while corpse, corpses piled up in the streets and people sold human bodies for food. In the 1930s, it was a serious crime to grow your own food, but by the time I was born, people were allowed a small household plot to grow vegetables or raise goats or chickens. In 1986, we learned about Chernobyl and how to minimize our exposure to the radioactive fallout from banned American broadcasts on Radio Free Europe. The USSR did not admit anything for four months. In 1988, my family was forcibly evicted from our family plot without compensation and moved into state housing. By then, my parents were determined to escape. Even after decades of plentiful food in the United States, we found secret stashes of rice and flour hidden all around my grandmother's apartment, under her mattress, in closets, in the bathroom. She was still traumatized by the starving times. I share this story because it is one of many stories that illustrate oppression. Maybe some of you have experienced oppression of some form in your own life, or if you came from another country. What is oppression? Oppression can be defined this way, prolonged, cruel, or unjust treatment or control. Or it could be the state of being subject to unjust treatment or control. It also can be defined as an arbitrary and cruel exercise of power. Mental pressure or distress. A feeling of being weighed down in mind or body. Oppression. It is something that many people are undergoing in our world today and in our nation today. And this is not anything new. Uh, oppression has been something that's been ongoing for thousands and thousands of years since man and his sinfulness. And when we look at the story of Nehemiah and his leadership we're going to see how Nehemiah was, in his leadership role, able to successfully overcome systemic oppression to the point where the people begin to praise God. This is what Nehemiah chapter 5 is all about. We've been looking at our study in Nehemiah in, uh, concerning his leadership. Last year, we, last year, last week, we saw Nehemiah and his leadership overcome opposition. This week, we see Nehemiah and his leadership overcoming oppression. 
And this is what we're going to see in Nehemiah chapter 5. How can leaders successfully overcome systemic oppression which can lead to the praise of God? Nehemiah is going to show us how he did so. An example for leaders everywhere. Number one, leaders that are successful in overcoming systemic oppression will first be incensed at the injustices committed against the people. Verses 1 to 6. And there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Here is an example of a family who don't, apparently don't own any land. The people at this time in Jerusalem and beyond are going through difficulty because of the building project, because of the wall. If you remember at the end of chapter 4, Nehemiah told he, the people who were working on the wall, he wanted them to stay there as a guard by night and as a working party by day. He wanted the people there 24-7. Evidently, these people, many of the people who were working on the wall did not live in Jerusalem, but they lived on the outskirts in rural lands, and they would, they would uh, they would travel to and from their home to work on the wall. Nehemiah says, no, we're better off staying here at night. The problem with that is that the people who are living in the outskirts, they can't cultivate their land. They can't cultivate their soil. They can't harvest a crop. And that's where they make their income because they're working on the wall. So now they're in financial hardship. Okay? Verse 3 then there were some who said, we have mortgaged or gave pledges to our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. So there we have the kind of problems that they were experiencing. There were people who had no lands and they were falling on hard times economically. Okay, and they needed food. And so what they would do is they would pledge their property so that they would get the income that they would need to get the food that they needed. Okay? So now their land is now in control of Jewish people who had power and had the means to give them money. And then they would charge an exorbitant amount of money, usury, interest. We'll give you money. We'll hold your land as collateral. We'll give you, we'll charge you, uh, we'll give you so much money, but then you're going to have to pay it back and interest. They would hold the land to make sure they would repay the loan. And then some people were asking a loan so that they could pay the taxes. The Persian rulers and the Jewish rulers were charging people uh, for taxes. And so the people were being oppressed because of what was going on in the building project. They were going through very difficult times right now. And the Jewish people made an outcry of what was going on. And what was Nehemiah's response? In verse 6, 
And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. The reason why Nehemiah is going to be successful in overcoming systemic oppression in his midst is because when he heard the people's protests, he became incensed. He was angry. There was a sense of righteous indignation. And whenever you're going to deal with a oppression, there must be in the minds and hearts of particularly leaders, a sense of anger and indignation at the abuse of power that is being levied upon the people. That's where it starts. Nehemiah's response is similar to the response of our Lord when he hears the people back in Egypt when they were under heavy bondage and they were, had a tremendous amount of burdens laid upon them and they cried out to God. In Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and 25, it says this, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. If, you're gonna, if we're going to deal, if leaders are going to deal with oppression, They must hear the protests of the people like our Lord did and be righteously incensed at what they see and what they hear. That's how you become, you start the process as a leader of becoming successful in overcoming systemic oppression. That's what Nehemiah does. Number two, leaders that are successful in overcoming systemic oppression will reprimand the leaders who were committing the injustices against the people, verses 7 and 8. After serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, each of you is exacting usury or charging interest from his brother. And so I called a great assembly against them, and I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren, or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say, because they were reprimanded, and he covered his bases beautifully. Remember that Nehemiah is angry here. He's angry So how does he deal with these individuals? And how did he get them to a position where they couldn't answer anything in response? Watch how he he does this, okay? How does he reprimand them? He does so thoughtfully after serious thought. He does so boldly. I rebuke the nobles and the rulers, many of which were powerful people, working under his administration. They, were st- they may have been friends with his, of his, but he wasn't afraid to boldly rebuke them. What calls to mind is John the Baptist, who boldly rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. He didn't care. He was bold in his reprimand. He did so thoughtfully, he did so boldly, he did so directly. Each of you is exacting usury from his brothers. He did so publicly. I called a great assembly against them. 
And he did so morally. And I said to them, according to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren or should they be sold to us? This is a moral argument he's saying. He's saying back then when the Jewish people were sold into slavery because of their economic status or because they were in war, some Jewish people had means and they had a responsibility of redeeming their brethren who were in Gentile nations. The term redemption is a slave market term. It's a price that you would pay to set free a slave. We are redeemed by Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ paid the price to set us free from sin. And he's making the argument to those Jewish oppressors, Nehemiah is. He's saying, you are setting them free by paying a price so that they're no longer in debt slavery to Gentiles. But now you're going to go and, 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 and sell them? Does that make any sense? What you're doing with one hand and setting them free, you're undoing with the other hand by putting them back in debt because of your policies, because of your practices. And so Nehemiah was successful in reprimanding the people because he did so thoughtfully, boldly, directly, publicly, and morally. And anyone who is in a position of leadership must do what Nehemiah does when they see an injustice. You don't just let your anger run rampant. It is interesting that Nehemiah's anger was thoughtful, controlled, and constructive. It was not impulsive, uncontrolled, or destructive. Many people today are angry at the injustices that are going on in our society, but they're not responding like Nehemiah. They're destructive. They're letting anger control them. Nehemiah doesn't do that, and as a leader, we have to control our emotions. Do you remember, remember Moses when he first was called to, to, to lead the people out of Egypt? Remember, before he matured, he was immature. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, looked this way and that way, and said, what? Ah, i got to do something about it. He was incensed at the injustice, but he couldn't control his anger. So what did he do? He killed the Egyptian who beat the Hebrew. He wasn't ready to lead the people out of Egypt. He had to grow and mature. That was evident because when he saw the Hebrew, two Hebrews fighting the next day, he says, why are you guys fighting with each other? And what did the, what did the Hebrew say? Are you going to do to me what you did to the Egyptian? You totally lost your testimony and your ability to lead. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He was very shrewd and thought about it. Bold. It was, this was a public sin, so he's going to rebuke the leaders publicly. There's risks in that. Leaders aren't going to take kindly when you, when you publicly reprimand them, a formal charge of wrongdoing. But it needs to be done to stop oppression, because that's where oppression comes. It comes from the top, and those who are abusing their power are using it and leveraging it against the people. The people cry out, but they can't do nothing. Nehemiah, as governor, has the power to do so, and he's going to do it, and he does it wisely by publicly reprimanding the leaders. That's got to be done. It's got to be done. That's how I, he was successful. Thirdly, 
leaders that are successful in overcoming systematic oppression will have the ability, this is amazing, will have the ability to get people to follow their leadership even after reprimanding their sinful actions? Imagine that. Verses 9 through 12. Then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury or charging of interest. Restore now to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you may that you have charged them. And so they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. He just got done reprimanding them publicly, boldly, and all the points that I mentioned earlier. He's telling them what to do and they say, we'll do it. And I asked myself this question, how is a leader able to maintain the people who are following him? How is he able to have them continue to follow him after he rebukes them. How does that happen? It tells us there's three ways. Number one, he had a genuine concern for God's glory. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? The people saw in Nehemiah that he had a genuine concern for the glory of God. Listen, he's saying, you leaders, you Jewish leaders, you worship Yahweh. Well, you would never know it by the way you're treating your people. Those who don't know our God see the way you're mistreating the people. And they're going to think like people like God. And as a result, they harpoon God's name. And God is no longer glorified among the nations. The reason why he was successful in maintaining leadership over the people that he rebuked is because he had a genuine concern for God's glory. Number two, he was willing to admit his own faults. He said, I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Yeah, I'm guilty. He wasn't as guilty as all of them. He didn't have land by which the people were being sold into slavery, but he was guilty of charging interest, and he confessed it. The reason why he was effective in his leadership, even after he rebuked people, was because he was authentic. People do not want perfect leaders because there's no such thing. What they do want is authentic leaders. That's what you're looking for. And when a leader says he's wrong and admits that he's wrong, it shows authenticity someone you can trust. They saw that in him. And because of that, they felt that this guy was still worth following, even though they were reprimanding uh, the people, the leaders. And thirdly, he had a genuine concern for others. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. He had a tremendous concern for the people and the people, the leaders saw that. So whenever you have 
a genuine concern for the glory of God, you are willing to admit your own faults, and you show a genuine concern for other people, when you reprimand people for their sinful conduct, they're still they willing, they're more, you increase the, the likelihood that they will continue to follow your leadership. That's what he did. They could have just said, no, nah, we're going to do it our, our own thing. But because they saw him with these three points in his life, it was a reality. They continued to follow him after he rebuked them. That's how it happened. And fourthly, Leaders that are successful in overcoming systemic oppression will take measures to ensure the oppressors keep their word. He knew that they could not be trusted with their word. He knew they couldn't be trusted. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. He took measures to ensure that the oppressors would keep their word. What measures did he take? These are measures that leaders should be taking in order to overcome oppression. Number one, he required a sacred oath. Then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. Again, he didn't trust their word, so he made them make a sacred oath and invoked God in it. He says, now you're going to have to do it, okay? Not only did he make them require uh, to, to make a, a, a sacred oath, he laid out the consequences of what would happen if they broke their word. Then I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out each man from his house and from his property who does not perform this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. What does that mean? When you shake out the fold of your garment, what does that mean? They would wear long flowing robes and those robes would have folds and they would wear a girdle or a belt around their waist. They would stick personal items inside their folds. And what he's doing is shaking out the folds of his garment when all the, their, their belongings that may have, personal items that may have been tucked in, he's shaking it out and it's all falling to the ground. And he's portraying uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a picture sense, he's emptying out all the possessions that, one, that he had on his person. And he's saying, if you don't keep your word, may God shake you out of your house and of your possessions as the possessions were being shaken out on my on my belt. He's giving them an actual picture for them to see. And he's saying, listen, if you don't do what you're going to say, God is going to see your oath and he's going to make sure that you suffer the consequences of violating your commitment and your promise. Leaders that are successful in overcoming systemic oppression will hold the leaders accountable, make them give their word in a formal declaration, and will reassure and make clear the consequences of their actions if they don't follow through on their commitments. That's what successful leaders will do. And that's what, ne that's what Nehemiah is doing. And thirdly, he took these actions publicly. All the assembly said, amen. This was public. Once again, this is a public sin. The leaders were involved. And so he's got to do it publicly so that the people can see that he's taking action against the oppressors. This is not done behind closed doors. This is done for everyone to see. 
It's got to be done publicly so that the people are aware that they made a promise and that they're going to be held accountable and what those conditions are. The result of Nehemiah's actions in these four steps, watch what happens. The result of Nehemiah's actions ended the oppression and it resulted in the people praising God. The people praised the Lord and they did according to this promise. When Nehemiah did those four steps, it ended the oppression and the people praised God. And the cries that are being uh, uh, lifted up today because of the oppression that they are experiencing. What do the leaders need to be doing to get those cries that are going up to heaven changed to where they're now praising God? Where are our leaders going wrong? If we take the steps that Nehemiah follows, uh, gives us, we go a long way in ending the oppression that is in our midst. But the leaders got to do this. And this is what successful leadership will do in overcoming systemic oppression. Now we turn to Nehemiah's leadership because now Nehemiah is going to give a description of his own leadership in contrast that with the oppressors that were in positions of leadership before he got there. So what we see now is godly leadership in action. Number one, godly leadership will not lay heavy burdens on the people. Verse 14, moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's provisions. What does that mean? As a, Pers- as a, as a governor of Jerusalem for the Persian court, he would have had an allowance where he could have levied taxes on the people who would then financially support him in his provisions. But he refused to do that. He didn't want to lay a heavy burden on the people because they were already burdened. So he was willing to forego what he had every right to have to lighten the burden on the people. Godly leadership is always seen with a desire to lighten the burden of the people, even foregoing the rights that you could have or maybe should have as a leader. Nehemiah won't do it. Godly leadership. Number two, godly leadership will have a healthy fear of God. Verse 15, but the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. Godly leadership understands that the people that they are leading and serving aren't their people. They're God's people, and God will call leaders to account, which should cause leaders to tremble. And I wonder today, are our leaders leading with a healthy fear of God? Do leaders need to be listening to this message today? Godly leadership will have a healthy fear of God. It puts in perspective who you are, what your function is, and who you're leading and who you're serving. They're not our people. They're God's people. And yes, in the sense that we are creatures made in the image of God, we are all God's people. 
Not all are redeemed people, but all in the sense that we are creatures made in his image are God's people. Those who are redeemed in Jesus Christ are adopted into his family. That's a personal relationship with Jesus. That's, we're talking differently. I want to make that perfectly clear. Thirdly, godly leadership will understand that the leadership role is an opportunity to serve others, not an opportunity to enrich oneself at the expense of others. Verse 16. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall. And we did not buy any land. All my servants were gathered there for the work. He had an opportunity to purchase land. He had the means to do so. But he understood by doing that, he's going to put people on the road to poverty. And he didn't want to do that. He understood that the reason why he was a leader was to work, to serve the people, to lead the people by example in his own actions. That's what godly leadership will do. And once again, I wonder how many leaders are actually in a position of leadership who have that understanding. Oh, they may say the, the things that they need to say because leaders are smart, they're educated, they know how to use words, they know what the people want to hear, and they'll tell you it. But God knows the heart. Fourthly, godly leadership will sacrifice for the sake of those they are called to lead. Verses 17 and 18. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared daily was one ox and, one cho- and six choice sheep. Also fowl were prepared for me and once every 10 days an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's provisions because the bondage was heavy on this people. Here we see he had every reason to take the taxation from the people because he was generous. He had to supply all of these people who were sitting at the table. Those who were wealthy and representatives from other parts of the Persian Empire would come to Jerusalem and he would have to offer them hospitality when they came through Jerusalem. So he had a lot of people, a lot of mouths to feed. But he never ever, uh, he was willing to sacrifice Uh, what he could have had. Some may argue should have had, but he wouldn't do that. He sacrificed for the sake of the people he was called to lead. And that's what godly leadership will do. And finally, godly leadership will always have the best interests of the people they are called to lead at heart. Verse 19, remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Some have taken this passage as Nehemiah's glorifying himself when he says this. No, he's not doing that at all. He's just telling God that I want you to remember me for all the good that I've done because the motives that I have had in doing what I've done were right motives in your sight. And anybody who's in a position of leadership has to have the right motives for doing what they're doing in their position as a leader. This was Nehemiah's leadership. He was successful in overcoming oppression so much so to the point where he led the people to actually praise God and demonstrate the kind of leadership that could actually work against and prevent oppression from even taking place to begin with. This is Nehemiah's leadership. And this is the kind of leadership that we need to see today in our world, in our chaotic world. Now more than ever, we need this kind of leadership. You know, We are, like I said, we are to some degree all leaders, aren't we? We lead people to Jesus Christ. We need lead. We need. Uh, we are people who God is is called, and and is using to draw people to Himself. And some of these points here, um, 
though we may not think we're leaders or governors like, like Nehemiah may have been, but we are all leaders of people. And we would be wise to keep these points in mind as we go about doing the work of God in a world where there is so much oppression and injustice is being done. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for uh, Nehemiah and his testimony. Uh, Lord, we are at a place in this nation where we do need godly leadership. There is much oppression. There is much opposition that we face as believers in this world. And Lord, we just pray that you would help us as godly men and women who desire to be your sanctuary, that you would help us to be the men and women you called us to be in drawing people to Jesus uh, by the way we live our own lives. Lord, help us to seek leaders that have a heart for you, leaders who are bold, leaders that are thoughtful, leaders that are courageous, leaders that are direct, leaders that are not afraid to call out sin and those in power when, when sin is evident. Uh, that's what you called Nehemiah to do. And we must do the same in our own lives for the sake uh, of those whom we have called to serve. Uh, Lord, leadership is not easy. And there's a price to pay and there's a lot at risk. But Nehemiah gives us an example of how leadership should be lived out in a broken, fallen world. And we thank you for this, this, this chapter, for this, for this book. And we pray that you would continue to reveal to us your truth with regards to leadership going forward as we continue our study in the book of Nehemiah. Lord, we give you thanks and praise this day and this morning for all that you have revealed to us. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.